The views expressed on Science for the People are not necessarily the views of this station, its affiliates, sponsors, or advertisers. This week we're talking about two common, everyday, city-dwelling insect species that stick together in large colonies. Ants and cockroaches. Stay tuned. This is Science for the People. I'm Rochelle Saunders. With me now is Dr. Corey Moreau, an associate curator and professor at the Field Museum of Natural History in Chicago. She is also a faculty member and lecturer at the University of Chicago in the Committee on Evolutionary Biology. Her research on the evolution and diversification of ants and their endosymbiotic bacteria uses molecular and genomic tools to address the origin of species and how co-evolved systems benefit both partners. Corey, welcome to Science for the People. Great. Thanks for having me. So how did you get interested in ants? I was one of those kids who loved playing with bugs. I grew up in New Orleans and living in an urban environment, um, I didn't have the opportunity to sort of interact with all of the biological diversity that kids who grow up in, you know, more rural settings get to observe. And so for me, I just always was attracted to the living world. And so for me, that meant spending hours looking at ants in the cracks of the sidewalk, collecting spiders in jars and having all of those, you know, wiggly, you know, things in in my room. But I sort of, although I really was fascinated by ants and uh, insects, it wasn't until I went away to college that I really re- recognized that you could study them um, and actually make a career of it. I love the idea that we don't necessarily have to go outside of a major city to be able to study natural life. Uh, we, we think, you know, if you want to really get into some area of biology, you got to go to the ocean or you got to go to the middle of the forest. But, you know, sometimes you can just look down at the pavement uh, at your feet. That's really neat. I absolutely agree. And one of the things I love about Insects and ants in particular is that I can go anywhere in the world and I can see the diversity. And I think that that's really striking. And for many kids uh, who are much closer to the ground than we are, I think insects are what they first fall in love with. Speaking of how diverse ants are and the fact that you can go anywhere in the world to find them, how many different ant species are there out there? There are currently over 13,000 species that have names that scientists have given them. But we know that that number is at least double and probably triple. And so just to put that in perspective, there are more ant species than all the birds and mammals added together. That's a huge number of ants. How quickly are we discovering the new ones? It varies year to year. So it depends on the work of taxonomists, which are the scientists who actually formally name and describe new species. So some years they'll have a gangbuster year and like, you know, several hundred will be named and other years are a little slower and maybe only, you know, less than a hundred will be named. But pretty consistently new species of ants are being described every single year. So knowing just how many different species of ants there are, I am going to ask you that uh, that question, which is, what is your favorite species of ant? Oh, that's an easy one. Turtle ants are by far my favorite species. I, I know that to most people, you think of an ant and you think of, you know, that they all look alike, or maybe you think that there are some red ones and some black ones, but there is so much diversity in the ant world. And both in their behavior, but also even just in their anatomy or their outside structures. And turtle ants are just phenomenal in their outside structures and have really cool biology as well. So what is so different or kind of makes turtle ants unique? So turtle ants get their name because they have a hardened kind of exoskeleton or shell. 
And when you disturb them, they often crouch down and pull in their limbs and their antenna, just like a turtle does. But what's really um, one of the most striking features is that they have a distinct soldier cast or uh, a larger major cast. But in that subcast, their heads have become highly specialized for blocking holes. So these ants live in hollow twigs within the dead nests of trees. And those soldiers essentially just serve as um, the nest defense where they just literally block the entrance with their heads. So their head capsules become these enlarged discs. And so they're really these beautiful structures. So they act kind of like living doors? That's absolutely right. So their entire job for colony defense is just to keep things out that don't belong within the nest. So how do they know? I mean, I'm assuming that their eyes aren't on the top of their heads. I actually haven't seen a picture of one of these. Um, um, look it up. That <laughs> I will. Um, how do they know who's coming? Is there a signal or a, maybe I guess a scent is probably what alerts them that something that a, a fellow ant is coming in rather than something they want to keep out? That's right. So most um, ants and insects actually communicate through pheromones. So it's, it's essentially almost like a scent that that is unique to both a colony, but also to a species. And so in the case of a turtle ant, uh, they only want to let individuals from their same colony into their nest, not even the same species, right? Because there still might be competition among those different colonies. And so each colony has a unique smell or pheromone that signifies to the soldiers, this is a member that you should allow into the nest. I didn't actually realize that ants were able to differentiate between members of different colonies and competing colonies. Is that true of pretty much all ant species? That is, in fact, true of all ant species. And and in most cases, and this is true of almost all species, uh, the species you're most likely to be in competition with is, you know, a, a member of the same species, not a different species, right? Because they're going to have the same ecological needs that you do. So they might be competing for the same food sources or the same nesting spaces, where a different species probably has different ecological needs, and you're less likely to be in competition with them all the time. So if a competing ant from a different colony came by, uh, would he be likely to get attacked? Would uh, Certainly he wouldn't be let in through the door. <laughs> oh, well, so first I have to say it would be a she. So ants have this really unique mating system. It's called haplodiploidy, where a queen lays an egg and it's united with sperm from a male that always becomes female. If she lays an egg and does not unite it with sperm, so it has half the genome, it's a male. So a male is haploid and a female is diploid. Now, the reason I bring this up is that all the individuals that are the workers within the nest, they're always female. So probably every ant you've ever seen in your life is female. Males and new virgin queens are only produced usually once a year, and that's based on environmental cues. And they have wings so that they can go off on a mating or a nuptial flight. So if you've seen an ant walking around on your countertops or fighting in the cracks of the sidewalk, those are, and they had no wings, they're always female. That's really interesting. Yeah. Uh, now I feel a little bit like Pixar lied to me. They absolutely did. That's my biggest grievance with all of the Hollywood, you know, movies about ants is they always depict the, the soldiers or the ones going off to fight or even the leaders of the nest as being male. So at any given time, what percentage of an ant colony would be female versus male? That's a great question. So 
during the non-reproductive parts of the year, it would be 100% female. It'd be a female-dominated society. Uh, during the times where the colony is ramping up for reproduction, so right before the spring is typically when ant nests release their sexuals, um, there I would say it might be as much as a third male, but it's still probably going to be um, outweighed by the number of females because they're the ones that are out gathering food or rebuilding the nest or defending the nest from predators, right? Or competitors. And so at that case, at that stage, those reproductives, the males and the new virgin queens actually don't contribute to the care of the colony at all. They're just sitting around waiting to be released to go off on their mating flight. So after the mating flight, do the virgin queens come back to the colony or do they go out and start new colonies? Yeah. So in most species, they go out and start new colonies. And in, and, and in fact, that's definitely the rule. There are very few exceptions to that. Uh, and what's really interesting is that that queen, when she leaves her natal nest or her home nest and flies off to then find other males of the same species, but not from her home colony, uh, because she doesn't want to mate with her siblings. Uh, she'll mate with anywhere from one to dozens of males, depending on the species. And then she stores all that sperm inside of her body for the rest of her life. She'll never mate again. And so she has a specialized structure called a spermatheca within her body to hold that sperm. The males die almost right away, usually within a couple weeks at the most of mating. And then the female flies off to find a new place to start a new colony. So she'll dig down in the soil or she'll dig into a hollow twig and start laying a, a whole new colony of her own of all females in the beginning so that she has enough individuals to go out and forage for food and defend the new nest. So when we talk about ant reproduction, what we're really talking about is ant colony reproduction. That's in fact true. I mean, the way that many people think about a colony uh, in social insects are in this construct of a super organism. And the relate, the way to think about it is to relate it to like the human body. So a single colony is the same as a human body where most of those individual ants are, are the equivalent of cells in our body. And that some of those cells are reproductive cells, right? And those would be the new virgin queens or the males that are going to go off on a reproductive um, flight. So, you know, in that sense, we tend to think of the colony itself as the organism. So if a queen runs out of sperm at some point in her life, does the colony just sort of die over time or what keeps the colony going or once the queen dies, how does once the colony the keep going? Once the queen dies, the colony will, will soon fail. Now, the individual workers may not recognize that the queen is dead right away. And so they'll go about their tasks, bringing food in, feeding the larvae that are still there that are maturing. But at some point, as those individuals become old enough and die, the colony itself will die. And so there'll be no replacement of the individuals in the nest. I'm assuming that all ants pretty much live in colonies. Are there any examples out there of ants living in isolation or sort of lone ants? There are actually no ants that are not eusocial or social. That's right. So all of them live in colonies, in fact. Now, that colony size can vary. So some species have only, you know, maybe a dozen or two dozen individuals and even in a mature nest, where some species like army ants can have millions and millions of individuals in a single nest. So how does a general colony work? I mean, we talked a little bit about the uh, cast of turtle ants that has the sort of door-shaped head, um, but I'm assuming there must be a sort of social structure in most colonies. That's right. And so most uh, species, as far as we know of ants, um, likely has uh, 
colony structure that's similar to that in honeybees that's really derived from um, development. So when an individual first emerges from the pupil stage as an adult, so remember ants have um, complete metamorphosis, so similar to things like butterflies. So their larvae look nothing like the adults. Essentially, they look like little fly maggots. And then they go through a pupil stage or similar to a cocoon stage and then emerge as the the um, the cast that you recognize, right? Which is the, uh, the ants that look like what you typically think an ant looks like. Um, and at that stage, um, we essentially have some individuals that are going to start caring for the queen or the brood. So when they first emerge from that, they stay closer to the center of the nest. So they're responsible for feeding the young or cleaning the queen. As they mature a little more, they start doing nest. Um, they start taking on tasks within the nest. So it might be repairing the colony from the inside or distributing food or waste throughout the colony. And it's not until they get much older that they eventually start foraging outside the nest. And so, you know, it's only once you've sort of lived for a while that you ever venture outside. And so I think it's one of my former PhD advisors, E.O. Wilson, often says that in the social insect world, it's that they send their grandmothers out to do the fighting and do the foraging for food. I didn't actually realize that the social structures and colonies was assigned by age, essentially, that everybody kind of circled through a lot of the roles. I had just assumed that uh, each ant was kind of given a role from birth, and that's that was life. <laughs> and, and that's true, I think, of most um, casts. But you have to keep in mind that in species that have specialized casts, where you may have like a soldier or, you know, that has a highly modified uh, anatomy or morphology, and that's situation, it's a little different. So in the case of the turtle ants that have the highly specialized um, soldiers with the head capsules or in army ants that have these um, soldiers that have highly modified mandibles that essentially look like the tusks of an elephant. And those individuals, because their morphology is so highly specialized, they can't do things like care for the brood or, you know, gather up small amounts of food and distribute it in the nest. And in that situation, they would advance more to defense earlier in their um, development. So do ants with some of those highly specialized casts, like the turtle ants with the sort of doorkeeper, um, are they able, is that just chance that creates a certain number of those types of ants with that type of morphology? Or can a, is there actually some control in the colony over how many of those ants can be produced? Yeah. So it turns out that for ants, most of that is derived through nutrition. So nutrition is determining how much of a, a hormone that your body is able to experience. So essentially, though, the colony itself is dictating which casts are produced. So if they take an individual larva and they feed it an adequate amount of food, but not an abundance, it's likely to mature and then eventually become a worker. If they give that a different larva lots of food, a surplus of food, essentially just feeding it until it's bursting all the time, it's going to upregulate a hormone that allows it to develop into that next cast, which is the soldier cast. And that's also the same way that they modulate the development of whether something becomes a queen or not. Because remember, males are haploid, so their you know, sex is determined by the fact that they're only getting half of the genome, where a female's sex is determined by the fact that the egg is fertilized, but then which cast she becomes is determined through nutrition. Interesting. So as the colony is more successful and has more nutrients, then they're able to produce more of a specialized cast. That's right. And so when a colony is young or when it's going through periods of 
of um, limited resources, it can't invest in those queens or those soldiers. So do we have any idea of what the mechanisms are or the communication strategies or the underlying kind of quote unquote magic that happens to make a <laughs> colony think as this sort of super organism? Do we have an understanding of how that works? Um, gosh, that's a tough question. I think partially because we barely understand that in mammals, and there are a fifth of the number of species of mammals, right? So we can make these statements that in some species of ants, we see some characteristics, but not in all. So we certainly don't understand for all. As far as understanding how that sort of collective intelligence occurs, I think it's not simple. I think it's species dependent and context dependent. And what I mean by that is that the decisions that are made on when and how to forage are probably driven by the the hunger level of the colony. Now, once they're out foraging, we know for some species, they'll, they'll minimize things like interactions between individuals to limit traffic jams, right? So I think there's a lot of processes playing out that are colony level traits that dictate the fact that we see these what look like very complicated and and complex behaviors. I have heard that there is some variation even within the same species from colony to colony. Uh, It was described in an article I read as sort of like a personality of a colony. Is that an accurate way to describe it? Um, I suspect that there's some truth to that, meaning that, you know, clearly genetics are going to drive some aspect of behavior. But it's hard to know with many species of ants because we don't have the large sample sizes of controlled experiments, right? So we can go out in nature and we can see, well, this colony is producing X number more foragers per day than this other colony. But you need to know something about the, you know, longer term nutrition of that colony, sort of has there been any events that have significantly influenced the number of individuals in the colony? So I'm always a little hesitant to assign personalities to organisms, especially things like a, an entire colony. But we do see variation. We see variation in the amount of work that individual ants do and contribute to within a colony. And we certainly see variation between colonies. Now, how much of that is driven through genetics versus, you know, environmental past events? It's, it's hard to know yet. Do you know if we have any idea how much of the uh, sort of superorganism behavior is, and I'm probably using the incorrect language, so please feel free to correct me. <laughs> how much of the sort of superorganism behavior is quote unquote pre-programmed in at the individual ant level? Like what happens if we take an individual ant and just watch it behave on its own in isolation? Does it behave the same? Does it attempt to behave the same or does it behave very differently? They tend to behave differently. So for the few studies that have been done, essentially they kind of stop doing anything. Um, The other manipulation that has happened is they've taken some of those specialized soldiers and said, okay, well, what happens if we take all the workers away and then task them with caring for the young? Can they even do it? And in most cases, they will. They're not as efficient, but they will take on a task that in nature you'd never observe them doing. And if you think about it from an evolutionary standpoint, that's actually um, critical to have that sort of uh, flexibility in your um, task ability, because if something happened and all of one cast was wiped out in nature, you'd want to make sure that the colony itself was able to persist by having that flexibility in the behavioral repertoire of those individuals. 
That's really interesting to me that something so small and with a very tiny little brain is able to act as a group and respond and be so flexible. You think that if a tiny little organism has been bred to be a soldier, that that is clearly all it has room for, but uh, it, apparently not so. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> there is flexibility. So if we were uh, shrunk down to the size of an ant and we actually got to walk through an ant colony, I'm thinking very much the magic school bus here. Um, <laughs> what would we see or notice that might be familiar with, uh, with the way an ant sort of city is structured versus what would be totally different to us? I think it would vary on species to species. So clearly there are lots of ants that live underground, right? And so I think in that case, um, what we would see is that suddenly vision becomes almost obsolete and almost everything's happening through chemical communication. Um, I think the other thing that we would see is that their architecture is actually quite sophisticated. So many social insects, termites and ants have perfected ways of, of ventilating and cooling colonies, right? So you have to ensure that you have both the temperature, but the humidity also at the right levels so that you don't have things like you know, fungus taking over the nursery where all the larvae are, are maturing, right? So you have to have ways to be able to regulate that. Um, the other thing I think that you'd see a lot is that you don't have as much flexibility to just sort of walk around everywhere you want to. One of the things that's been demonstrated is um, through some really nice work of tagging individuals within a nest is that as those individual workers emerge, right, from that pupil stage, and they stay very close to the queen and larva, they actually never venture all the way to the outside. Well, the same is true for the individuals on the outside of the nest. Once they've transitioned into being those foragers that are leaving the nest, they come right inside the doorway of the nest, but they never go all the way deep down to where the queen is anymore. And so, the question becomes, why do we see the physical structuring of where individuals are within a nest? And some of that has been hypothesized to help limit or mitigate the spread of harmful microbes from the outside world to the most susceptible uh, part of the nest, which is the queen and the young. So there's very much sort of a degree of closeness you can get to the queen. There's, there's kind of like a no touchy zone, except for some specialized people. <laughs> That's right. And it actually seems to be always in one direction, right? So the youngest individuals interact with the queen, um, but the older individuals don't. So it's not sort of senior seniority, right? It's essentially just how far along that developmental trajectory have you gone. And the older you get, the farther out you go. That's right. Someone I knew once ended up with like a sort of ant highway through their kitchen. Um, it was like a regular stream of ants marching from one side to the other. And he laid some traps and cleaned the floor with bleach. And for a while, he, uh, he managed to get rid of them. But a few weeks later, they came back along basically the same route. Um, and this happened multiple times. Um, was it just the shortest route from point A to point B? Or is there some other reason that the ants kept finding that exact same route across his kitchen? So in that case, it's likely the shortest route. For, so there was clearly something on the other end that they wanted, which is probably food or water, right? That's really what drives most um, insects or even other organisms to go out foraging in the environment. Uh, but then once that trail was laid by a few scouts, they essentially lay a pheromone trail that says, look, I found a food source. It's a good quality food source. Follow me back on this same chemical trail and you'll be able to pick up some of that to bring back to the nest. Now, <clears throat> clearly, once a single individual has done it, the chemical trail is not very strong. 
Once several have done it, especially in a short time window, that chemical trail becomes quite uh, thick, right? So now you get more and more individuals attracted to it. So that was clearly what was driving the traffic in the shorter term. Now, once he wiped it with bleach, it dissolved that chemical trail, which is why it took him a while to refine that shortest path to the food source at the other end. So they were basically, in all likelihood in that case, they just, it was the shortest route from point A to point B, but reinforced once somebody found it. <laughs> That's absolutely right. Um, there's another interesting experience that I actually had with ants that uh, it was happened to me about uh, about eight years ago or so. I was walking around outside um, and I uh, there was a trail of ants marching almost in single file, uh, each one carrying what I think was an egg. Um, they were coming out of the grass in one spot and kind of marching along the sidewalk and I managed to follow the line down the block across the street and down another half block wow. until it disappeared <laughs> back into the grass. And I've always wondered what was going on there. So in that case, they were probably relocating their nest. So many ant species about once a year will actually pick up and move the entire colony. And what you saw them carrying were likely larvae. I mean, the eggs are usually so small you can't see them, but they are, look like little white masses. Um, and sometimes pupa also can be white and not some species of ants have a cocoon and some have what are called naked pupae. But regardless, that's probably what you saw moving. Um, what's really interesting is there are some species of ants that are called slave making ants. And in that situation, it's uh, these ant species uh, rely on the enslavement of another species of ant in order to survive. So what that means is that the queen of the slave making species will move into a new nest, kill the resident queen, um, hunker down until the, the, ne the nest she's now taking over no longer recognizes her as a threat. And no one's entirely sure how that happens. It's believed that a lot of it has to do with coming into contact with many individuals and taking on that colony level scent, that pheromone cocktail that we talked about earlier. Um, but then once she's done that, she starts laying eggs, but they're going to be of her own species, right? Not the nest she's in. And in that case, those workers are incapable of caring, caring for the young, caring for the queen. So they rely on that enslaved species to do all the work. Well, now you can imagine as that colony matures, the, the resident species, the enslaved species, um, are going to start slowly dying off. And since her own workers are incapable of caring for the young, soon you'd have no one to sort of do the duties of raising the new larva or even feeding individuals. So her workers, the only thing that they're really good at is foraging through the environment to find another colony of the enslaved species and running inside the nest and stealing the brood. So stealing all of the larva and the pupa and carrying them back to her nest to let the enslaved species rear as part of their own colony. So it could also be that you saw slave maker ants. Oh, that is so cool. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, it just fascinates me how many different behaviors and different strategies we see, even in a species, one species or one sort of group of species like ants. There seems to be so many different ways that you can solve problems. That's absolutely true. I mean, the, there's a remarkable number of ways that ants have done unique things. And so, for example, uh, 
my the first project I ever worked on was on a group of ants called Dracula ants. And these ants get their name because of the way that they actually feed. So before I tell you about Dracula ants, I just have to remind you a little bit about basic ant biology. And that is that the reason you see ants out foraging in the environment, and once they've subdued a prey item, something like a cricket or a grasshopper or a, a caterpillar, the reason they carry it back to their nest is that ants as adults actually have such a tight constriction at their waist. So that's what gives them that narrow little segment between the, the rest of the body, the abdomen and the and what people typically think of as the head and the thorax. Well, since that constriction is so small, they can't eat solid food items as adults. But the young that look like those fly maggots I mentioned, they essentially are just a sack with a mouth. So they're responsible for essentially digesting and eating all of the protein of a colony. Now, they also have the highest nutrient needs, right? Because they're continuing to grow. And so what happens is they bring that prey item back to the nest and then the larvae are able to actually feed on that. Now, since some workers and certainly the queen needs some of that protein, source distributed around the colony, they will go over to the larvae and they will drum on them with their antenna. And this signals to the larva to regurgitate some of that liquid food source to the adults. So it's a way to distribute that, that you know, nutrients around the colony. So just like we have um, in birds where the adults will regurgitate to the young, here we have the young regurgitating to the adults. Now, when there's liquid food sources, all individuals can sort of regurgitate those around. But in the Dracula ants, Unlike in most other species, once they've fed that prey item to the young, the larva will not share any of that through the sort of social trophallaxis or regurgitation. So in order for the queen or the workers to get access to any of that nutrients, they actually bite a hole into the integument or the cuticle of the larva and then lick up the exuding hemolymph or, or insect blood. So that's how they get their nickname, the Dracula ants. And so they've sort of found a way around distributing resources in a species that doesn't have this behavioral um, social food sharing. Wow. Uh, sorry, my face just made a funny, <laughs> a funny face. <laughs> so they actually bite their larvae in order to feed. That's right. So they essentially are drinking the blood of their own young, but it's considered non-destructive cannibalism. <laughs> uh, I know that's a funny phrase. That's um, a great phrase. <laughs> but it's considered non-destructive because it doesn't seem to harm the larva. They'll continue to mature and they'll eventually molt and become workers themselves. But what's interesting is if when you find a colony of these, the older larva actually are heavily scarred from being fed on so many times. Fascinating. Is there an amount that a larva can be fed on, presumably, where it won't make it, that it's just too much for it to take? I'm, I'm sure it is. I don't think anyone has ever measured that. Oh, it'd be really interesting to find out what percentage of larvae actually make it to adulthood and what the percentage is of ones that maybe uh, are, are sacrificed to this feeding. And it might be very small, but I'd be curious to know what it is. There you go. So that's one of the things I also love about ants is there are so many unanswered questions that pretty much everyone who's a biologist right now could just become an ambiologist and we still wouldn't have enough work for them all to do. A never-ending supply of ant biology to work on that. That makes me happy. <laughs> me too. <laughs> so now you work in, a, in an interesting area with ants. You actually spend a lot of time thinking and focusing on the gut microbes of ants. Can, so can you tell us a little bit about why uh, that's of interest? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, I'm an evolutionary biologist, and I tend to think of uh, on a scale that's much longer time periods than most people. So instead of thinking about just sort of what's dictating how an ant is interacting in the environment now, I sort of think about what are the evolutionary forces that have driven the patterns that we see today. And so from that standpoint, sometimes it has to do with, you know, 
the external factors in the environment that might explain where we see ants, why they're behaving the way they do. Um, but sometimes it's something fundamental about the ant itself. Maybe it has something to do with its genome or in the case of, of gut microbes, something about its microbial associated community. So I actually first started working on gut microbes um, when I was in graduate school. And it, it was one of those fortuitous events where my, one of my PhD advisors, Nomi Pierce, had a new uh, postdoc in our lab, uh, Jake Russell, uh, who worked on insect-associated microbes, but not on ant microbes. Uh, and he needed something to do in the short term. And so we started collaborating. And that just sort of opened this world of microbes to me that I hadn't actually been thinking about before. But as soon as we started collaborating, it became abundantly clear that a lot of what's dictating an, an ant's or any organism's ability to feed on the diet it does is whether it has a microbial community that's supplementing or giving access to the host to those nutrients. So for example, one of the things that we see is that herbivorous species of ants, so ants that are essentially vegetarian or eating very low on the trophic scale, um, have co-evolved and in some cases, uh, highly similar bacterial communities, even when the hosts aren't very closely related. And so what we're finding is that those gut bacteria are necessary to upregulate the host's nutrition. And that was really uh, a really exciting, you know, line of research uh, for me personally to start thinking about was, well, what dictates what bacteria are found within the gut of an ant? What dictates where in the gut they're found? Um, why do we see similarities between species of ants? Is it that they're closely related and maybe it's just that it's through shared evolutionary history? Is it something about the environment? So maybe they're just picking them up because they're all found in the same forest? Or is it something else about them? And so really starting to think about what are the drivers that are shaping the bacterial community structure um, is something that I think is getting a lot of excitement across all organisms. We hear a lot about our own gut microbiomes. But then what really strikes me about ants that makes it so fun is we have so much diversity. Diversity in species. We have diversity in what they feed on. We have diversity on where they're found. And so we can start to actually ask questions that we can't really do with humans, right? We can't manipulate us in the same way that we can take a colony of ants and manipulate them. This is just a really interesting idea when we think about gut microbes and evolution that that's species and or colonies of ants might be evolving in part because of of the the gut microbial flora and fauna that is available to them. Is there some idea that perhaps there is some convergent evolution in different groups happening in part because of the gut microbes being similar? Wow. Um, yeah, the question becomes, which came first, right? Mm. The gut microbes or the host? <laughs> um, yeah, the chicken or the egg? Uh, you know, that's a really interesting question. And I think that we're not entirely sure. So we definitely see a lot of convergent evolution in bacterial communities of ants that feed on similar diets. But then the question is, is that did they acquire the gut microbes because they had this diet need? Or is it that they've switched to this diet because they have the ability to take on these gut microbes that allow them to eat a food source that's different? And that's a really interesting question that we don't know the answer to. And I suspect it's probably a little bit of both. I mean, the reason that ants could shift onto a novel diet is because they have to be able to capture enough resources from this novel diet, right? And so they're going to need some 
um, mechanism for doing that. And so whether it's a physical characteristic or a metabolic characteristic of the host, or whether it's taking on a, a bacterial um, association, you know, there are many ways to solve that. And so, yeah, I don't, I don't know that we have that answer yet, but I, I think it is certainly one of the more exciting things to think about. I love the idea of examining uh, not just the microbiome of people or dogs or sort of large animals, but the microbiome of tiny, tiny things like insects, like ants, like bees, um, because it it makes me feel like we're mu all much more a part of sort of the same ecosystem in a way that I think people are always very good at separating ourselves from. So it really enchants me that that the microbiome in my body, while not necessarily connected, is functioning maybe by the same rules. That's absolutely true. And, and, you know, the other thing that we're not entirely clear on is maybe how connected they are. And I don't just mean in an evolutionary perspective, but, you know, there's uh, a lot of lines of research now, even for the human microbiome, that there's something called the hygiene hypothesis, which is we've started to notice that in um, populations that are highly clean, right? So they've become so hygienic, we've, they've essentially lost a lot of the bacterial diversity, both in their homes, but also in their guts which seems to have downstream consequences. So we see, you know, increases in things like asthma and allergies. Uh, so the question is, is being clean so good for you? And and one of the things I often think about is that, well, what made our, our environment so more beneficial in the bacterial sense? And so clearly it's just having the microbes there, but how do they get there? And so, you know, I would argue that maybe having ants run through your kitchen isn't so bad. They might be tracking some bacteria into your kitchen, but you might actually need those, right? to prime our immune systems. Is there any difference in the gut microbiome for ants based on their social standing within the colony? So I'm thinking the different social groups, the sort of ones closer to the queen versus the ones as they get farther out, or I guess as they, they get older. Um, are we seeing any differences in the gut microbiome there, or is it pretty much a, a, an established pattern across uh, one colony? Yeah, so not a lot of studies have been done on that, but the few that have essentially say... Once you're a mature worker, your gut bacterial community looks the same no matter what your role is in the colony. Um, but what we are finding is some really striking differences in the different developmental stages, which maybe isn't all that surprising based on what I told you about the Dracula ants, that in most species of ants, the larvae are acting as the gut of the entire colony, right? So they're processing and digesting food and then redistributing it around a colony in a way that the workers aren't. So we actually see distinct bacterial communities in the larvae, which are not the same as what we see in adults. And how much variation are you seeing uh, in the microbiome between the, in the same species, but between different colonies? Uh, we see a little bit of a difference. It's not huge, maybe not surprising, but we actually have um, some evidence that even the bacterial community is tracking the host's evolutionary history, even at the finest scale, so at the level of the population. So um, some colleagues of mine and I have done some work in the Florida Keys, and we've been able to show that there's some amount of differentiation of the different colonies based on which of the small keys or islands that they came from, and that their bacterial community 
is mirroring that same amount of genetic variation. Interesting. So can you then use the microbiome that you find in ant colonies to trace back to find out where they've come from? Wow. Um, I think that would be tough. Yeah. And the reason I think it would be tough is that one, the generation time for most microbes is so fast that it would, you know, you'd have a lot of signal to noise. But coupled with that is that bacteria are able to do what's called horizontal gene transfer, right? So they're swapping parts of their genome all the time with even distantly related bacteria. And so not that it's impossible, but I think it would be easier to look at it from the host perspective Mm. than from the bacterial perspective. So when we talk about evolving ants, I'm assuming that when we look at ants evolving, it's always a colony evolving or that since it's the colony reproducing. Is is that generally the case? It's sort of a colony evolves and those ants within that colony are general sort of a a homogenous group? Well, I mean, you know, then the... Okay, so that's a tough question because I think that you tend to think of a colony as an individual, right? Mm. So you often don't say an individual is evolving. You would more likely say that a population is evolving or, you know, that that's the level of selection is on the, the population. Uh, and so I think the same holds true for ants is just sort of keeping our minds around what's the equivalent of an individual, which in this case would be a colony. And so, again, we're more likely to see that structuring at the population level, right? So what are the forces that um, are selecting for those that are, are more likely to survive and go on and pass on their genes? And that's going to be at the population level. We kind of think of natural selection, I guess, happening on individuals, but evolution happening uh, on populations. But I guess with ants, it's extra confusing because there's a a super organism in play. <laughs> right. And, you know, we do see that, you know, natural selection is is essentially selecting on individuals, but really how it plays out, as you pointed out, is at that sort of population level, right? So you might have a single individual who's unfit to pass on their genes because of some selective pressures, but you wouldn't argue that it, that individual is evolving, right? Right. Corey, thank you so much. It's uh, I'm constantly fascinated by the fields of entomology and ants in particular. I think, like you said, because they are something that is so available to everybody, no matter where you live, there are probably ants. That's right. And so I would highly encourage everyone just to go outside and spend some time observing them. For all those aspiring future myrmecologists and entomologists, you know, pursue your dreams. There are so many interesting and compelling questions still left to answer. So we need lots more of you. Thank you so much. It's been my pleasure. Up next, I'll speak with Richard Schweid about his book, The Cockroach Papers, a compendium of history and lore. Stay tuned. Science for the People is a weekly radio show and podcast that explores everyday life from a scientific perspective. We are a member of the Skeptic Network, a collection of blogs, podcasts, and video content focusing on science and critical thinking. To find out where Science for the People airs near you, or to listen to past episodes, check out our website at scienceforthepeople.ca. You'll also find links to support us at Patreon, to connect with us on Facebook and Twitter, and to subscribe to the podcast in iTunes. And now, back to the show. Welcome back to Science for the People. I'm Rochelle Saunders. With me today is Richard Schweid, a journalist, documentary reporter, and author of eight nonfiction books. He's a co-founder and was a senior editor of the Barcelona Metropolitan, a monthly city magazine in English, and the production manager of the Oscar-nominated documentary Balseros. He's here to talk about his book, The Cockroach Papers, a compendium of history and lore. Richard, welcome to Science for the People. Thank you very much, Rochelle. Thank you for having me on. So, uh, why a book about cockroaches? I 
I think most people want to pretend cockroaches don't exist, but you wanted to write a book about them. <laughs> I had always also wanted to pretend that they didn't exist, particularly when they existed, uh, coexisted with me. But uh, I was working in Brownsville, Texas, on the newspaper there, the Brownsville Herald. And where I lived, as most places in Brownsville, had a substantial healthy population of Paraplaneta Americana, which some people call water bugs. It's a sizable cockroach. They get to be, ooh, I'd say maybe two up to three inches. And I would come home at night after a long evening of uh, editing the newspaper and turn on the light and when I turned on the light, uh, oftentimes one of these cockroaches would, or a bunch of them, would be startled and take to the air. But they can't fly very far, that particular species. And they would often land on me or around me. And uh, one night when it happened, I thought to myself, this is so awful. I bet that everybody who's ever had any kind of an encounter with cockroaches probably remembers it. Uh, you know, we forget most things in our lives that happen to us, really. But I think that most people remember most of the times they've confronted a cockroach. And I thought, well, uh, everybody would have a good cockroach story to tell. And that sort of made it a good candidate for a book in, in, in my mind. Plus, I was curious to, to find out the natural history of the cockroach. I like that you say everybody has a good story about cockroaches. I think we'd probably put good in heavy quotations. Quotes, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, there, it has a, everybody has a story that at least will uh, hold your attention, probably, which is really <laughs> what makes a good story. <laughs> there are definitely a couple of stories in your book that, let's let's say, give me the eebie-jeebies. Um, <laughs> well, I mean, why do we have such a visceral dislike of cockroaches? In human eyes, they seem to have very few redeeming characteristics. Well, that's true. They do seem to have very few redeeming characteristics. If you're not, for instance, a professor of neurology or not taking a neurology 101 course, they're used, often used in, in laboratories because they have a fairly simple and easy to observe nervous system. So they often get dissected by, uh, students who are beginning their careers uh, studying biology or neurology. But apart from that, I think that most people don't like cockroaches because they perceive of them as dirty animals. Um, they associate cockroaches with dirt, which is uh, both correct and incorrect. It's incorrect because the cockroach itself is basically a clean animal. It spends a lot of time cleaning itself, particularly its antennae. Uh, a cockroach's antenna is where it, per it perceives the world through its antenna. It smells through its antenna. It uh, sees and hears after its fashion through its antenna. And they're actually, uh, and cockroach antennas are divided into about 135 different segments, each one controlling a different thing. So the cockroach spends a lot of time sort of grooming itself by uh, cleaning its antenna, sort of like a cat cleans its fur. And uh, in, in that sense, a cockroach in itself is, is quite a clean animal. However, that said, it, it has to be recognized that uh, cockroaches do like uh, dark, dank, dirty places as far as their living quarters go. And uh, they also will eat things which to us are unimaginable. Um, they will eat uh, feces. They will eat live people or dead people. They'll nibble. You know, they won't eat a whole person, but they'll certainly nibble with great gusto on uh, great gusto on a uh, on a live or a dead person. 
And, and so they have some, some eating habits which uh, really repulse us, basically. <laughs> they'll eat anything you leave out, as everybody knows. And plus they'll eat odd things like paper and glue. Uh, apart from cucumbers, there's not a lot that a cockroach won't eat. Uh, and I think that inspires a deep disgust in, in, in a lot of people. Um, nevertheless, that said, cockroaches, they don't carry much in the way of disease. Uh, they can be vectors for certain kinds of diseases, but it's very rare. Uh, so they're not as sort of germ-filled as we think, although it's true that they may be coming out of the garbage and crossing our eating area. <laughs> um, so I guess those are a, a few of the few of the reasons that people are sort of repulsed by them. You know, I, I remember... Uh, when I would talk to exterminators in New York, for instance, they would tell me these stories of uh, somebody calling up and saying, listen, I'm going to pay you my mother's apartment. It's just infested with cockroaches. I see them there all the time. Would you go by and exterminate, please? And they would go to the apartment and knock on the door and say, uh, listen, we're here. Somebody's uh, bought you an extermination plan, and we're here to exterminate cockroaches. And a person, a woman, often an elderly woman, said, I don't have any cockroaches. There are no cockroaches here. Uh, people are loath to admit that they have cockroaches because they see it as a sign of poor housekeeping. Uh, so we have a fairly complicated relationship with cockroaches. I think one of the things for me that kind of freaks me out about cockroaches is you very rarely see just one or two. We often think about infestations of cockroaches and, and large groups of them, you know, how you describe turning on the light and they sort of ran for the darkness. Why is it that cockroaches are always together? Why why can't we just have one? Well, uh, for one thing, uh, cockroaches, they have a particular... Uh, sort of uh, behavior in which they like to get together. Uh, cockroaches like to live together, and they like to live in groups, and they particularly like to live packed in with each other. Um, that's their behavior pattern, uh, so that they will, when a cockroach colonizes a place, lots of cockroaches go there quite rapidly. They follow, actually, the scent, the pheromone of a cockroach, uh, will often lead cockroaches to to their where they're staying, so that the the population continues to grow. Once cockroaches establish themselves in a place, more and more cockroaches are going to come and join them until they're packed in so tight that there's no room for any more. And that's why when you see one, it's a bad sign because it's just like you say, cockroaches. There's never just one cockroach. If you see one, it means that somewhere out of sight, there's a whole group of them. It also seems like the cockroach mating and reproductive cycle is pretty short, so that, you know, even if you just started with a relatively small group of them, it would probably spiral out of control pretty quickly. It does spiral out of control fairly quickly. They're fairly young uh, when they begin to reproduce, and they can reproduce a number of times. Uh, you can always watch to see if the... Uh, the egg envelope, uh, the utica, is, uh, you can see those as well as cockroaches. Sometimes they'll leave their, uh, their egg sac around and then you know you've got, uh, you know, a lot of cockroaches in the house. Uh, but they do reproduce fairly quickly. They go through, the other thing is that they go through a number of molds until they reach reproductive maturity so that a cockroach will shed its skin. And you may find that around, or you may see what appears to be an albino cockroach, which in fact is not an albino cockroach, but which is a cockroach that has just uh, molted, 
and has yet to form the, the hard outside shell that characterizes cockroaches. So the mating process of the cockroach is actually kind of interesting. Can you walk us through how that works? The cockroaches actually, um, well, to begin with, they're attracted by pheromones. Uh, it's another segment of their antennae. And when cockroaches are attracted, um, they have a manner of copulation uh, it depends on the cockroach. They're various species. Some uh, do what we would think of as a standard mounting. But um, the cockroaches that we're familiar with here, uh, the common cockroach and the Peroplaneta uh, americana, uh, they mate by end to end. In other words, they're each looking in a different direction. Uh, they join at the backside. And uh, the male passes a spermatophore uh, to the female. And the female fertilizes uh, the eggs with that, and then uh, that inside of a egg sac, which uh, you can often see extruding from the back end of a cockroach, and she lays that uh, where she will. Now, the male cockroach tends to pass on a sperm packet, correct? So that the female can sort of carry this around and lay more eggs when she feels that it's time? That's right. Yeah, no, she doesn't have to uh, use the entire sperm packet at at the same time. Uh, She can carry it around and she can fertilize her eggs uh, a number of times from the same sperm packet, uh, obviously increasing uh, the likelihood of cockroaches being born. How long does a sperm packet last for? I wrote it better than I can say it. Shall I, say, shall I read this one? Sure. In German cockroaches, the kitchen species it is, the one that we're likely to see in the kitchen, a small cockroach or brown cockroach, it's about an inch long. The German cockroach female doesn't release an airborne attractant, but has a pheromone in the grease on the cuticle of her exoskeleton that lets the male know that she is receptive. He must make physical contact to be stimulated. So that when a male meets up with another cockroach, he'll touch it with his antenna. And if he finds that it's a virgin female, after a brief bout of antenna rubbing, the male will turn away from her and raise his wings, an invitation for her to climb on his back. And the, the rapid stroking of each other's antenna has proven to be an indispensable first step in the mating ritual for Blatella germanica. Uh, so that first they have to be stimulated, both the male and female, and the way they do it is, is to rub their antenna together. Uh, and, and one roach can tell immediately by stroking the antenna of another roach whether that other roach is male or female and receptive to uh, copulation. So in both species, the German and the planet, the planet Americana, the water bug, a willing female will respond to the male's raised wings by climbing aboard him. And the female German cockroach, as well as many other species, mount the male slowly, nuzzling his back, and feeding on a substance there that is produced specifically for courtship by a pair of glands under the male's wings. Without this love meal, a female cockroach will not proceed with mating. So she licks the male clean, and once she's on top of him, he maneuvers in such a way that um, his genitals are in contact with hers, and uh, then they are in position, successfully hooked together as it was, and, and he swir- swivels around so that they're each facing outward, so that they're facing sort of back to back. 
and uh, at that point, uh, things proceed as they proceed. <laughs> One thing, scientists have observed sperm from an American cockroach, perhaps an Americana, uh, used nearly a year after it was passed to a female. So, I mean, compare that to, to us, for instance. Uh, you know, with us, uh, reproduction either happens at uh, the moment of copulation or shortly thereafter, or it's not going to happen. You have to do it again. But in fact, uh, for a cockroach, um, she can hold on to that sperm packet uh, for up, almost up to a year. And she can actually, that will often last a female most of her life. Uh, she can use it that one time, and that's all they need. Also, uh, the male, once he has passed his sperm packet, uh, is essentially done. I don't think that a male generally is going to do that twice. I think he's going to do it once. It takes about 12 hours. In a German cockroach, the transfer of sperm is going to take about 12 hours, after which the female expels the empty sperm packet and leaves it behind. But she goes on her way with a lifetime supply of sperm safely stored in her body. So the mating process takes 12 hours? Uh, yeah, well, the, maybe the passage of the sperm packet until she empties it takes 12 hours. Oh. And the actual connection between the roaches, I have to say, I'm not sure how long it takes, but it's a long process. The whole thing of, uh, you know, the dance of the antenna, the mounting of the female on the male, and then the uh, gradual hooking up and passing of the sperm packet, it's quite a long process. Uh, I find this interesting because even if you were to somehow be able to only have female cockroaches and like guarantee somehow there were no males, you still couldn't necessarily guarantee you wouldn't have babies. <laughs> no, that's true. That you wouldn't be able necessarily to exterminate uh, the species. Uh, that's for sure. Because uh, and uh, I think that's one of the reasons why you know we have so many cockroaches. It's. Always really interesting to me. Humans these days were really on the top of the food chain, and it seems to be the really small things, insects uh, in particular, that plague us, that are the things we really spend our time trying to fight against and often fight losing battles against, things like infestations of cockroaches or bed bugs. Um, Absolutely. The bed bug is a terrific example of the same sort of thing. You know, we almost seem like for a long time the bed bug had disappeared, uh, at least in, in our part of the world. Uh, and now, of course, the bed bug has uh, reappeared in many fancy hotels and many not-so-fancy living places. But uh, it's very hard to erase these things from our lives and perhaps not even something that's uh, necessarily recommendable. I mean, we may well poison ourselves in many instances uh, in a fashion that's worse than coexisting with uh, with these insects. Probably not a bed bug or a mosquito, which is another uh, insect that raises havoc, but maybe with a cockroach. Cockroach doesn't really, you know, a bed bug uh, really, really is annoying. It's terrible, terrible itch, and a mosquito can kill you. Uh, bite of a mosquito, it's carrying malaria and passes it to you, or any a number of other diseases that can be fatal. Whereas a cockroach, you know, it's nasty, it's dirty, maybe, maybe, but uh, it's not likely to give you any disease. Uh, and certainly not likely to kill you. Richard, thank you so much for being here today. A really interesting book. <laughs> Thanks very much, Rochelle. I enjoyed it. I enjoyed talking about cockroaches. It's a wonderful animal. 
If you want to learn more about Richard Schweid or his book, The Cockroach Papers, a compendium of history and lore, we've put up some links on the show notes for this episode, which you can find at scienceforthepeople.ca. If you support Science for the People on Patreon, we will have some extras from this week's show up on the Patreon-only feed in a few days. If you're not a supporter yet, you might be interested to know we regularly post extra content that didn't make it into the episode on our Patreon feed, which you can gain access to for a $1 monthly donation. You can also find us on Twitter and Facebook, where you can keep up with the latest from the Science for the People team, and on iTunes, where you can leave a rating and review. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week on Science for the People. Science for the People is produced by Rochelle Saunders and edited by Ryan Bromsgrove. Helen Quivelon is our publishing liaison. We get research help from Josh Witten. Coordination and additional behind-the-scenes support comes from the Enthusiastic Skeptic Network team. Our theme song was written and recorded by Fractal Pattern, and its title is Binary Consequence. Science for the People is listener-supported. You can find us on Patreon, where you can support us with monthly donations in any amount. In return, we regularly post special patron-only extra content and after-show casual conversations with guests. This show is created in partnership with the Skeptic Network, a collection of blogs, podcasts, and video content focusing on the intersection of science, popular culture, politics, and social justice. You can find out more about Skeptic at skeptic.org. The show is hosted by Rochelle Saunders and me, Desiree Shell. Thank you.